Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. It's good to see you. I'm really, really grateful. Uh, again, woke, waking up this morning, um, just realizing a couple years ago, because I'm, I'm getting ready to record a video that will go out next week since we're not having our normal service, and it triggered flashbacks to when we were doing this for like a year where I didn't see anybody. I was preaching to a camera and feeling so disembodied from the church. And uh, I'm just really grateful, again, that we're physically in this room together and that we have each other. When the church is gathered, which is a very rare occasion in our lives, man, isn't it a good thing that we have one another to walk with? And I don't know if you've noticed, but um, the last couple messages, last four actually, uh, I'm trying to, um, to describe a picture of some of the most basic truths about this Christian life that are re-energizing me and are stirring up something inside of me. What, it, what does it mean to be a disciple? And what does it mean to be the church? Today, I want to give the third message in what is now really becoming a simple series on what the church is. And the title of the message is The Third Way. There's an ancient document called the Epistle to Diognetus. Uh, Many believe that it was written by a Christian in around the year 124 AD. And it was written to Diognetus, a Roman official, member of the elite in Roman society, who had heard these stirrings about a new movement, a religious sect called Christianity. And, you know, like the Romans had conquered lots of people and encountered lots of religions. And the way the Romans did it was, it was like they collected religions and gods the way we collect souvenirs. When they conquered the people and found a god they admired, they would just Romanize that god and adopt that god and that practice into their pantheon. So their religion was like a souvenir shelf. If you come to my office, I have some shelves where I've collected little knickknacks from all the places I've, I've visited in the world. And Roman religion was very much like that. And yet they encountered this new sect called Christianity, and many Roman officials could tell something was different about this movement, and Diognetus was very curious, so he reached out to someone who knew about this faith and asked some very pointed questions. And the result was a very long letter written to him, describing and answering some of the questions about this new movement. And in that letter the writer refers to Christianity as a new genos. That's a Greek word that's kind of hard to translate, but it could be translated as tribe or race or people group or even a way of life. And so he describes these Christians as a new kind of human, not just a new religion, but a new kind of human. And Gerald Sitzer, who wrote a book called Resilient Faith, a book that I, I have been really touched by, he chooses to translate new genos as the third way. And it's the third way because there were two predominant ways that people approached faith and life in the Roman Empire. The first was the Roman way, which is to say every way. The Romans were pretty open-minded people. And you, you remember in school when you learned that all the Greek gods you learned about had a Roman counterpart? 
It's not because they were cousins related. It was just because the, the Romans kicked the Greeks' butts and then collected their best gods and went, we like these guys, let's just change their names and make them Roman gods. And that's the way it worked. And so the Roman way was to gather many gods and to offer a cafeteria buffet of the best that religious people had to offer. And in that way, when they conquered nations, they enriched their own culture by doing this. Many people are very drawn to that way of looking at it. But then there was this other movement called the Jewish way. And though the Roman Empire was vast, Jews were scattered throughout the entire empire, and they stood apart from all the other religions that the Romans had encountered. The Romans had great respect for the Jewish faith because it was so old and had endured for so long against so much opposition. And so they would leave the Jews pretty much alone. They would let them have their own practices. They wouldn't force them to honor the Roman gods. As long as they were good citizens, they were left largely alone. And the Jews, in turn, chose to form a community that was isolated and gathered unto themselves. So they were a nation within a nation, if you will. And those were the two main ways, the Roman way and the Jewish way. But into this context, this very... um, carefully managed balance, this new sect arrived called Christianity, and it represented a massive disruption in the way life was lived in the ancient world. There was no other way to describe them except to call them something wholly new. And I like Gerald Sitzer's translation, the third way, because this was neither the Roman way nor the Jewish way. It was something completely different. The fact is, for thousands of years, life on earth had been ruled by binary choices, like the Roman or the Jewish way. It seems like human beings love binary choices. I know binary is a triggering and charged word today, but binary just simply means one or the other. And have you noticed that almost in every field, even on things that don't matter, people are super passionate about one or the other choice, you know? I mean, even on things where the difference isn't that big. Like in the early days, Apple, like Mac and PC to me, big difference. Because I felt like every time we bought a PC for Harvest, it was at Best Buy's Geek Squad every three months getting fixed. And so we spent a little more, bought Macs, and we were actually using our computers rather than servicing them. Now, fast forward many years, there's almost no difference, okay? I I hate admitting it, But it's hard to be like, oh, Apple is way better because it's just not. In fact, in many ways, it's worse. There, I said it publicly. (laughs) But even when there's really no big difference, it doesn't matter because we seem to love pitting a battle between two things. And have you noticed, Sometimes I think we prefer this because it's simple and clear. It's one or the other. Good guys, bad guys, black, white, for or against. We love when there are two things to think about, and it's also because it's efficient. You don't have to do a lot of thinking, a lot of nuance, measuring, and analysis. Just pick one. It's not a huge menu, A or B, one or the other. And for people who don't like thinking or are very busy, that's a really preferable situation. I also think binary choices are are very attractive to people because sometimes the truth is actually binary. Something is either true or it's not. But it really matters how you set up the binary choices, doesn't it? But at the heart of it all, I suspect the reason we love A versus B is because this world of ours is ruled by a spirit of conflict. 
And the truth is we just love a good fight. We love A versus B because it sets up life for a nice fight. And let's be honest, when you have someone to be for and someone to be against, doesn't it make things a lot easier? I look forward during this part of the year to the Bears games. I shouldn't say that. I kind of look forward to them. Uh, It's an exercise in faith. I hope they win. But I look forward to it because I love the idea that my team is going against another team. I know who the good guys are and the bad guys are. And it would really complicate the sport if football was played among three teams. In a triangular weird field. That would mess everything up. We love A versus B. And what feels better than than the hot, searing satisfaction of a good, justified outrage? Doesn't it just feel good? I find myself sometimes scrolling through the short reels on YouTube, and I seize on the ones where people are in a fight, and they're just so mad, and like I find myself agreeing with one or the other, and I'm surprised, shocked at how good it feels to feel outrage. Why is that? Why does it feel so good to be so angry at someone else? What's wrong with that person? What an idiot. How can anyone do that to another person? And I'm standing with one person in that video looking at the other person going, you are just the worst. And I love it. Am I the only one? Am I solely responsible for the explosion of conflict videos, conflict pornography on YouTube? We love conflict. And A versus B sets up the world perfectly for good conflict. I'm not the first person to observe this. And by the way, this message is going to feel like a joke with a really long setup and a short punchline. But the punchline comes from God's word. And it's a very important punchline. Bear with me. I'm not the first to observe that we're living in the most divided times that most of us can remember in the whole of our lives. People in our world are split in half on nearly everything. And it's not that we haven't had that before, but what seems and feels different to me now is that we are inflexibly divided. Inflexibly. We have divided and organized ourselves into tribes, and there is no movement, no merging, no meeting anywhere in the middle. There is simply you are all here or you are all there. You're either all right or all wrong, right? You, you, hear, you hear that if you're not woke, you're asleep. If you're not on the right, you're in the wrong. It's just one or the other. You cannot be partly right or partly wrong. You are either a nutcase or you're one of us. And what's frustrating about this is that none of the camps that the world offers has a monopoly on truth and virtue. None of them. I find things that are beautiful and agreeable on both sides of most issues. That doesn't mean I think truth is relative. It doesn't mean that I think the the only truth is, eh, whatever, let's just agree to disagree or meeting in some toothless middle ground. But I think that all truth is God's truth and no one side as the human menu presents to me seems to have a monopoly on that. And what's so frustrating is that that's the way it's packaged today. You are either 100% on our platform or you are one of the bad guys. And I don't know how to choose a human camp anymore. And I'm so thankful that I realize I don't need to. You know what it feels like? Because neither side is willing to concede any ground to the other. Emotionally, this is a, it just occurred to me this week, 
What's the emotion I'm feeling? Emotionally reminds me of an ugly divorce where there's kids involved. And I feel like we're the kids and I want to love mom and I want to love dad. I find beauty in both of those imperfect people. Yeah, dad's not great. He's not perfect. Mom's not great. She's not perfect. But there are things I love about both of them. And I would love to just somehow maintain a relationship with both. And yet what happens is mom goes, no, you either hate dad and love me or we're done. And dad goes, hey, if you're going to say anything nice about that crazy woman, we're finished. You either love me and hate her or love me and hate him or there's no relationship. That's emotionally what it feels like to be alive today in the marketplace of ideas. You are either all with us and hate the other side or we have nothing left to talk about. Now that's my subjective one man's experience of life in America, but that's exactly what it feels like to me. Hostility is very high. And as a result, anxiety is very high. There's this self-perpetuating cycle where hostility creates anxiety. And then anxious people are given over to greater hostility. So that's hostility to anxiety to hostility to anxiety. And it's just this unending cycle. And that's what it feels like right now in our society. Mark Sayers wrote a really interesting book. Um, it's called The Non-Anxious Presence. And Mark Sayers, he pastors a church in Melbourne, Australia, and is probably my favorite living author right now, writing in the Christian sphere. He writes in this book, those within the system, and he's speaking of societal systems in which hostility and anxiety are the self-perpetuating, increasing cycle of damage. Those within the system no longer act rationally, but rather, high emotion becomes the dominant form of interaction. Does that sound familiar? Is anyone just calmly talking about anything anymore? You just bring up, I like Chick-fil-A. You're crazy! It's high emotion over nothing. The system's focus is directed toward the most emotionally immature and reactive members. Those who are mature and healthy begin to adapt their behavior to appease the most irrational and unhealthy. This creates a scenario where the most emotionally unhealthy and immature members in the system become de facto leaders shaping the emotional landscape with a focus on their negative behavior and what they see as the negative behavior of others. In other words, in such a system, the voices that rise loudest are the least reasonable and most volatile voices. That doesn't mean they have nothing to be upset about. It doesn't mean that there isn't a basis for their emotions. But in such a system, the voices that fuel the hostility and anxiety gain the greatest hearing. Irish poet William Butler Yeats wrote a poem in 1919 called The Second Coming. He wasn't a Christian by any stretch, but he thought a lot about a coherent system of understanding the world. And he watched what World War I had done to the world that he knew, how polarized the world felt. I mean, this was the first great world war. You had to pick a side. You were with the bad guys or you were with the good guys. And they'd seen a level of violence 
and embodied evil in the world that they could not imagine. The kinds of weapons and warfare that World War I presented to the human experience was horrific. And in the aftermath of that war, he wrote this poem called The Second Coming. It's his, perhaps one of his most famous poems. And I want to read some lines from that that I think describe similar to what Mark Sayers is saying. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. And listen to this. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Have you noticed that our world is largely shaped today by people called influencers? That should give you some pause. Before, we used to at least masquerade as politicians and preachers and teachers and journalists and celebrities who try to influence culture. They're not even trying to hide their job description on the business card. It just says, my whole job is to influence people. That's it. My entire mission is to exercise and hold influence over other human beings. And how do we measure the success of an influencer? Somebody tell me. Number of followers. At least the world is being obvious now. Right? I mean, who is shaping our world? Influencers and followers. And an influencer gains platform and, let's not kid ourselves, an incredible amount of prosperity by making sure that they demonize and vilify anyone who disagrees with what we're saying. That's how this entire system is fueled. It creates a polarizing effect that is monetizable so that those who are mainly there to create influence and exercise it are enriching themselves on the growing division. The worst thing that could happen to an influencer is that people find some way to agree with one another and to walk together. Their job is over. It's like an arms dealer. An arms dealer goes broke when peace erupts. And I think that should give us pause for just a minute because many of us have fallen under the spell of an influencer that is not our redeemer. We're called somewhere in scripture, I think, to follow, to be followers. But I don't think that we're supposed to be the followers of these human influencers. Now, this system of hostility and anxiety might feel like it's really old and ancient. Or, I'm sorry, that it's really modern, but it's actually as old as humanity. I don't think there's ever been a season of human history where hostility didn't describe how people got along. The Bible even records that from the very first family, if, if we take the Adam and Eve story literally, their first two kids, one murdered the other. So it's not like we're living in really divided times all of a sudden. The thing is that this has always been the case. And so it's good news that we find great hope and guidance in Scripture for how to navigate life in a hostility-filled, conflict-oriented world. In the days that Paul was writing shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, 
The early church had hardly gotten its start, and it was already filled with division. And within the church, among Christians, there was division, but also there was really sharp division between Jews and Gentiles because they were trying very hard to differentiate themselves from the other party. And into this Jew versus Gentile conflict, Paul writes these powerful words in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. He writes, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Listen to this. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Writing into a Jew versus Gentile conflict, that dividing wall of hostility where Jew and Gentile could never coexist, His solution was not to create a new people called Jew-tiles, where he just mixed Jew and Gentile together into one people. But here's what he reveals. This is truly remarkable, that it was the plan of God towards peace was not to meet in the middle and to fuse the two people into a compromised position, but to create a new humanity. In other words, God's approach was not to make red and blue into purple, but to create a whole new color that was not the colors of the world or the systems and categories of the world, but an entirely new way of life that might have shades of red and shades of blue, but this is the multifaceted, beautiful truth of the way of Christ. This, for him, was the only path to peace that was viable. It was not to ask people to meet in the middle but to form a new humanity through the sacrifice of Jesus to create a whole new people out of the original two that are both reconciled first to God so that there might be a fighting chance of being reconciled to each other. If we don't reconcile ourselves first to one creator, one God over all of us, sit under the rule of one king, there is no hope that people this divided will ever find their way to form one people ever in this world. It's not possible in this broken world. Jesus destroys the dividing barrier of hostility through his redeeming work of sacrifice on the cross. So that as people are first reconciled to God, there is now a bridge to cross. And if you're a mathematics person, maybe this will help you understand a little better. This is the situation the world constantly presents to us. We live in this one-dimensional world on a line, and you've got to pick one or the other. Those are the only two viable options, it seems, presented to us. And into this seemingly unbreakable stalemate, Jesus basically offers a third point. And in introducing that third point, if you're in math, what, what, what just happened there? We went from a one-dimensional world to a what? A two-dimensional world. We literally have created a new dimension. And this is the redemptive plan for peace, which Paul is trying to point out. He's saying that among divided people, you will never find a middle ground that helps them without deeply sacrificing something they 
anchored their identity to, you're not going to find a middle ground around which people can actively form one true union. It's just people who had to neuter some part of themselves in order to get along. And yet, what Paul says is, as Christ is introduced into this, and this is one-dimensional picture, he creates another rally point for everyone to move towards, so that now we're no longer having to give up something, but instead we can passionately be for something. We can be for one king, one kingdom, one way of truth, one way of living, that will actually unite a divided and fractured humanity. It's not just another contender, it's a whole new dimension for thinking about how life on earth can be organized. This isn't the way of compromise, it's not the way of concession, this is the way of Christ. And in every conflict, whether it's in a family, between a parent and a child, between lovers, between friends, in every conflict scenario, We constantly think misguidedly that the only way forward is to get you to meet in the middle and make some concessions and referee the fight and somehow go, can you give up this? Can you give up that? I've tried that over and over with people and have gotten not very far at all. I've tried it in my own life and find that the final result is something lukewarm and unsatisfying to everybody. In the best cases, we're left going, I guess this is what life will feel like now. It is when people in conflict realize that their first conflict is not against each other. It's they are at war with God and within themselves. There is no organizing principle, no internal peace that allows them to rally towards another human being, even if they begin in a place of disagreement. And Jesus says then, in John 14, 6, a profound thing. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The world has presented you only one story. This is the only way to live, left or right, this way or that way. And Jesus introduces himself into the human story and says, I am now telling you there is a new way. This is important for the church to hear today, the evangelical church, because the church in America is being ripped in half by wokeism on one far left and Christian nationalism on the other far right, and neither one of those is biblical Christianity. I don't mind saying that publicly, and I expect to hear a lot from people after I say it, but I stand by what I say. Neither one of those pictures is fully biblical Christianity. Because I don't believe the people of God can be organized around a human tribe and human ideologies. It must draw its convictions not from common sense or worldly thinking, but first from allegiance to Jesus Christ, to His Word, His Kingdom, His rule. Then maybe we could talk about what the implications ought to be in the real world we live in. If the only goal you have is to bring the church closer to your ideological tribe, then we cannot form unity in this church. It's not going to be possible. Because the goal of the church is not to move towards one of those human ideologies or the other, but to birth out of the two divisions a new humanity which belongs solely and only to Jesus Christ. Distinctive among the landscape of ideas and people as being wholly, categorically different than every other option available. And if we do that right, 
There are times when people on the left will say amen to the church, and there are going to be times when people on the right will say amen to the church, but all day long, Jesus himself, our king, will be saying amen to his church. That's the vision that energizes me. If I, if I want to pour the rest of my 10 tired years I got of work into something, that's the picture of the church I want. I love that picture. That we fight for distinctiveness and a categorical otherness that is driven not by reacting to one side or the other, but moving towards Jesus with great focus and devotion. Whatever he says is what we will be. Whatever he says is how we will live. After Moses received the Ten Commandments on a stone tablets, God spoke these words to him. They might be prophetic for us today. I'm so tempted to see a double meaning in this. But maybe it's not so inappropriate. He says to Moses, So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. It might be prophetic for us today. To travel along the third way doesn't mean we take the Jewish way an enclosed, isolated, insular way where we say, let's forget about the world and just form a Christian enclave that only worries about churchy stuff. That is not what we're saying at all. In fact, the call is not to ignore the realities of the world or to isolate ourselves from the world, but to be fully engaged in the world as a third kind of person, a wholly different race of human beings, Different in every possible way because we have been made into a new creation. We are not the old people from the left or the right who now have Jesus' language to justify our position. We are the people of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if anything I now believe in following Jesus agrees with the left or the right, that will be because that reflects his truth in some way or the other. It's so freeing to think of it this way because now I don't have to swear allegiance to one platform, give or take all of it. It's all or none. That's the bargain of the world. If you're going to be for us, you have to be for us on everything, on environment, justice, race, all of it. I don't think the world is that clear that we can have one camp that speaks to everything. The only camp that could possibly do that is the camp of the Creator. What does it look like to live in the world, engage with the world, and be wholly other? I'll end this way. I began this message by referring to the letter to Diognetus. Let me read you an excerpt from that letter. I think these ancient letters that circulated around the church are a hundred times richer than most Christian books today. So let me read this for you, and we'll close this way. Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. 
They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies, and are hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. May God grant us the grace to live this way today. To be people embedded in this real world, not hidden away in a cloister, but to be embedded and engaged in this world as a wholly other kind of people with no illusions and no confusions about whose lordship and whose authority we follow. I totally understand that this message is provocative. It's meant to be. And I apologize that some of even the illustrations I use may be triggering. I'm trying to learn to give trigger warnings. Uh, it's not a thing that in my generation I, I was trained for, and I'm, I'm growing more used to the idea. And so I apologize when I step in it and speak about something that is triggering. But I intend this morning to trigger at least something. To trigger reflection in your heart about who influences you. Because we now live in a world filled with those whose sole intent it is to influence you. Who influences you? And who do you follow? Church, we have a king. He has an agenda. He wrote a book. He has established structures for this kingdom. And he calls us to follow him. If ever the world needed the church to be distinctive, it is now. If ever this divided world needed a legitimate third way, which, by the way, the world has never produced. The world on its own has never produced a viable third option. Because we don't want it. We want to hate one and love the other. Jesus has introduced himself to us as the third way. And that is what the church is meant to be. This is not a declarative, drop the mic, end of the conversation message. It's meant to be the start of a conversation and a process. Because figuring out what that looks like is going to be the work of decades for us. To learn how to live in this world as a wholly other people. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be painful. There are going to be times when, just as the Lord predicted, the world's going to hate your guts. They hate us, but often for the wrong reason, but they don't hate us for the reasons Jesus predicted. We're meant to be distinctive enough that the world doesn't know what to do with us. But we're also meant to be beautiful enough that the world cannot exist without us. We're meant to be waypointers to the King of Kings, a savior, a mediator, a reconciler. And that matters now more than it ever has. I want us to keep talking. I want us even to keep arguing until we arrive at a place where we can say, this is the way forward for us. Because I'm tired of refereeing a fight. Aren't you? I'm tired of feeling like the rope in a tug of war. 
I'm tired of being told by influencers what I'm supposed to believe and what I'm supposed to stand for. My king has already spoken. As for me, I want to follow him the best I can. I invite you to do the same. That will make us the church. Usually I make seeds angry by running too late today and way early. But I want to spend about five minutes just sitting with, processing, praying through probably the swirl of ideas and thoughts and words, even feelings that are likely churning in you if you've been paying attention today. And I want to invite you to sit first with God and within yourself and just process it, pray, think. And then after that, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and I'm going to ask you throughout the next several weeks and months to interact with each other and to interact with me. And let's continue figuring out what this is supposed to be as a church. So let's sit together with God, and let's pray and think. Do you know that There's a brokenness in each of us. A fracture. And on a regular basis, we have to turn to Jesus to say that there, yes, is a once-for-all-time reconciliation between us and God through Jesus. But there's also a daily turning towards Him saying that the more I drift from you, God, the more I will drift from myself and from my fellow man. A heart drifting from God drifts towards anger and hostility and anxiety because it needs at least something clear. If you're feeling lots of turmoil inside, I don't want to oversimplify it, but could you begin at least at this place in faith saying, God, have I somehow become separated from the God of peace? Would you say a simple prayer in faith that I want peace and I trust your word that peace comes from being reconciled first to you God, we all see it. We've all said it. Our world is just being torn apart. It's fractured. Even within our families, people seem so divided. And it's hurt. It hurts us to feel this. It's distressing. hostile, divided world, colors fade, flavors diminish. There's so little joy. And yet you describe a better way. You speak of a kingdom in which peace 
and love and hope, faith are real things. So lead us as a whole church. We want to turn neither to the left or to the right. But we want to look up to you and become truly the people of the King of Kings. A new race, a third way. So we pray that out of the two, separated by a dividing wall of hostility, through the work of Jesus and your sacrifice, you would form a new humanity out of the two, something new. One people reconciled to God who will then call the world to reconciliation as ambassadors. Give us the courage to talk with each other and not to cancel each other. Give us the courage to listen to viewpoints that we find it impossible to agree with and do our best to learn from each other and to learn from you. And in the end, we pray that it would not be the way of any worldly tribe, but it would be the way of Jesus that would define life for Harvest Community Church. We pray this in faith. We ask you to do this, to give us the strength to follow you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.